You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Eric Larson is the author of the nonfiction works Isaac's Storm, The Devil in the White City, and Thunderstruck. His new book is In the Garden of Beasts. Thank you for joining me, Eric. Thank you. Eric, this is a very interesting uh, work of history. Like most of your books, I think it reads like a novel, a, a complete page-turner. But I think it's there's a fundamental difference between this and some of your other works in that your other works... Um, took us to places that we and people that we thought we knew and showed us things underneath and inside that we didn't know. This takes us to something that, you know, World War II history is is pretty familiar. But what you show us here that we don't know is a perception. You put us firmly in the minds of people. We live here in the future of this book, at least, completely understand what has hap- what has happened this is all past so our perception of this past is colored by by what we know you put us in that past looking forward yeah well that's actually i i i i see exactly what you're getting at there and in fact that it turns out to be the source of the source of 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 an interesting and quite powerful element of narrative tension that readers are bringing to the book that I frankly had not counted on, and that is this idea, this idea that we all we all know how everything turned out, but when you go back and you see these people acting out their daily lives, when you're armed with that sense of hindsight, you look at them and you want to just scream at them and say, don't do that. It's like a horror film. You know, it really is. It's like a horror film where the babysitter hears the growling in the basement, and she goes down to check, and you know that that's not Rover in the basement. You know, it's 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 some horrible creature, and you just want her not to go down in the basement. And that's what's happening here with this book: is that people people know what happened, and now they go back to these very early days of of, of Hitler's rule, and they see people behaving in ways that just are completely counterintuitive to what you would expect and hope. And that's something I think that must have been really difficult to achieve. Let's talk a little bit about. The, the character in this book, the, the main character whose arc carries the story, William E. Dodd. Yeah. Well, I, he, he is a main character, but I would argue that, I would argue that the, the book would not have worked with just him. It needed the second main character, which is his daughter. Oh, let's yes. talk about William E. Dodd first. What I liked about him, and you know, dumb luck has been has been um, the best thing for me throughout my life. I mean, gosh, I even married my wife after a blind date. You know, I mean, it's just that kind of thing. Um, but I was I was looking for looking for an idea for a book. That's always a hard time for me because every time I finish a book, for some reason or another, I start with a blank slate. I don't have any ideas in reserve. I don't know why that is. It, it drives me crazy. It drives my family crazy. So I was looking for an idea about five or six years ago, and I I just tried to jump to to try to jumpstart my brain. I went to a bookstore, and just started looking at the books on the shelf to see what what resonated with me and what didn't. And I saw a book that I'd always meant to read. It was the Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. You know, at twelve hundred pages, tiny print. You know, it was just too intimidating. Uh, for all of these years, but I had nothing better to do, frankly. And I thought, yeah, I've never really thought about doing anything on the Third Reich, but, you know, I'll just read this book. So I started reading the book, 
And I was about a third of this is a long story, but I'm getting to the Dodd part. Um, so so uh, I was reading the book, and about a third of the way through, um, I, I just suddenly realized, wait a minute, the author, William Shearer, had actually been there in Berlin from 1934 on. He had met all these people we know today to be the most evil people of the 20th century. He met Hitler face to face. He'd been at parties with Goering and Goebbels and Himmler and Heydrich and all these characters. And I suddenly thought, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to try to get a look at that time through the eyes of people who were there but who obviously did not know the ending? What was that world like? What were, as you put it, what were their their perceptions? What was their point of view? And so this idea resonated with me, and I thought, okay, I need characters. I need, um, if I'm going to do this, I need characters. So I started looking for characters. Um, I went to the library and just read everything I could, all the personal memoirs and so forth, and at some point stumbled across the diary of William E. Dodd. And what I liked about him was that here he was this... He was this, this you know, um, sort of solid Midwest, well, he had North Carolina roots, but this, this sort of Midwestern solid and stolid professor of history at the University of Chicago, mild-mannered guy, had no business being named ambassador to, to, to Germany and yet was. And I love the fact that there was the, here's this innocent being thrown into this cauldron. And, you know, what would he... What did he experience? What would he have experienced? And then when I came across his daughter's memoir, then I was absolutely hooked because, you know, when she arrived, she fell in love with the Nazi revolution. So what you had was two innocents entering this dark forest. I just love the idea of that. It's interesting that you mentioned William Shearer because that was the first book of historical history that I ever read that captured me. I read it when I was like in seventh grade and I just was immersed in this huge book. And I kept thinking about that. And then to encounter him as a character as he shows up partway through the well, book. Well, he shows up so very, wh- very briefly in this yeah. book. And that's because, you know, he arrived in 1934, which is, mm-hmm. which is uh, actually he arrived after the bulk of the action in the book, which is really, really pretty pretty uh, pretty focused on the period from the summer of 1933 through the summer of 1934 which turns out to have been really very much very much a defining year in in Hitler's career if you will and I, I really had never been aware of that it, one of the things you do is to really do a great job with uh, putting us in in this place because um, when we think about Hitler and the Second World War, we kind of think about it fully formed. There, this massive machine mm-hmm. of evil. But he had to get come from somewhere. Yeah. And you do a fantastic job of showing us how he went from somebody who had his hands on the wheels of power to completely complete uh, tyranny. So, and that's a fascinating uh, arc too. Well, yeah, it, 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 it's interesting. Um, I think there is a tendency to see this period of the Third Reich, 1933 through 1945, when it all fell apart, as as one homogeneous block of war and Holocaust and so forth, when really it, it was not at all. I mean, I, I, I always have to tell people, I say, look, you know, this is not a Holocaust book. This is not a World War II book. This is this is early days. This is before. You could, you're going to get a sense of the seeds of all this stuff coming down the pike, and that's what makes it, I think, so chilling. But these are this is this is a, a, a very important period in terms of Hitler's consolidation of his power. He he had he had been by the time William E. Dodd arrives as as ambassador, 
Hitler at that point is, is chancellor, but he does not yet have absolute power over Germany. That power resides in the president, who is Hindenburg, who is very ill, and everyone knows that at some point he's going to die, at some point very soon. What I was not aware of was that during this, during this essentially first year, year and a half or so of Hitler's rule, and during the Dodd's first full year in Berlin, um, this, this, I wasn't aware of the depth of this conflict within Hitler's own government that could easily have, have ended with a coup or a rebellion that put somebody else in power, if not for the events that, that form the, the, uh, the really horrific climax of the book. But I was not aware at all of that, that conflict, um, or at least the, the degree to which it really threatened Hitler's regime. That's one of the things I think that makes this book so interesting. Everything in here, every character is completely nuanced. There are no black. You think of World War II, you think of absolute evil. You think of black and white. And this book is all shades of gray. People, we think Nazis, the Gestapo, the, the, the Gestapo turns out to not, and at the beginning, to have had some, you know, positive aspects. It's so fascinating. I wouldn't say the Gestapo necessarily had positive aspects, but I think you're, what you're referring to is the chief of the Gestapo, Rudolf yeah. Diels, um, who was the, 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 the first chief of the then brand new Gestapo. Um, he was a very unusual character. Now, he, he only held the job for one year, and he was replaced by the really evil characters, Himmler and then his protege, Reinhard Heydrich. But Diels, first of all, Diels was not a member of the Nazi party. Um, he was a very suave, very debonair guy, a real hit with the ladies, you know, considered a real you know, sexually charismatic guy. Um, and he was considered by Dodd and the other diplomats in Berlin to be really a man of considerable integrity. He was the man, let's say one of your foreign nationals got locked up in, in one of uh, uh, Germany's burgeoning number of, of prison camps or ad hoc prisons that were run by the stormtroopers, uh, he would go to Deals and say, look, help us extricate this guy from the stormtroopers. And Deals would do it, even if it required force. Now, one of the things, too, that's interesting is how complicated this... You do a great job of giving us this uh, a picture of the complicated politics of Germany that Dodd encountered and the complicated politics back home. Dodd was... Uh, I. I love Dodd as a character because he's, you know, he, he was a poor man. He worked himself up from the farm and he had a lot of integrity. And he was, I, I love that you call him a Jeffersonian Democrat. He's a, he's a dyed in the, dyed in the wool liberal. Yeah. And he, and he called himself a Jefferson, Jeffersonian Democrat. He loved, loved the idea of his yeoman farmer roots. And that's, that's one reason he maintained a farm in Virginia, which was his, that was his sole country. I mean, that's where he, he just loved to be when he wasn't in Chicago, um, doing his, uh, his teaching and running the Department of History. Um, but he was he was a, a very compelling character to me, precisely because he was so wrong, at least initially, so wrong a choice for for Berlin. And and, and you know one reason he got selected, one reason Roosevelt chose him, is be and, and really to Dodd it sort of came came out of the blue is how he described it. But one reason Roosevelt chose Dodd. Um, is because uh, a he knew German, but b because nobody else wanted the job, you know, and and it, and it's interesting. His his choice of Dodd is interesting in another way because it testifies to the idea that that at least in thirty three thirty four, you know, we think today of Hitler's Germany that it must have been foremost on everybody's mind all along, you know, from thirty three on. 
it wasn't, obviously. I mean, there were other, other matters that seemed far more important to Roosevelt and to his administration. Berlin, Nazi Germany was obviously a, you know, an, an interesting area with, with uh, some unfortunate things that were happening, but it wasn't high on the radar screen. Otherwise, why would you appoint this, this, this really ill-equipped history professor to be your ambassador to, to Nazi Germany? So that was another kind of interesting element there. Yeah, he, as you said, I mean, uh, FDR was in the middle of trying to pass the New Deal. He didn't have time to have some kind of complicated uh, process deal with the Republicans. He had, and this sounds so familiar to today, he had a bunch of hardcore Republicans who were opposing the New Deal, and he was trying to get that through. He didn't have time to deal with this foreign policy. It was just a, an irritation to him. Well, nor could he say anything or do anything provocative because then he would, he would raise the ire of the isolationists who were, who were fast gaining, gaining voice in America, you know, the isolationists being that, that very large and noisy um, group of, of Americans who did not, after World War I, did not want any further involvement in, in European affairs. So here you had Roosevelt, whose priority was to get the New Deal passed. His priority was to, was to um, drag America out of the Depression. Um, and, uh, you know, Germany as an irritant just uh, was essentially just that, was, was an irritant, but not the thing we know it ultimately to have become. Yeah, and even the main, our main worry about Germany wasn't so much the Nazis, it was the debt they owed us. <laughs> right, right. That was, that was when, when Roosevelt uh, talked to Dodd and, and told him what he wanted Dodd to do, he had, uh, he, he raised essentially two points. He said, he said first that, that, uh, that he wanted Dodd to serve as a standing model of American liberal values. And second, he wanted Dodd to work on, on getting the Germans to repay uh, a, a $1 billion plus um, debt that uh, Germany owed to American creditors. Now, a billion bucks doesn't seem that great today in terms of international debt, but at the time, it was huge. And it was seen as one element, one, one piece of, the th of all the things that had to happen to help America get out of the Depression. So that was, that was a priority. Interestingly, Roosevelt also told Dodd that um, as, for, as for the so-called Jewish question or Jewish problem, uh, which is how they, the uh, Nazis managed to hijack the conversation from the beginning. You're referring to it as a question or problem. Uh, with regard to that, Roosevelt told Dodd, he said, you know, there's not much we can do for Germany's Jews. Um, what we can do is, is we, we will do everything we can for Americans in Germany who are of Jewish extraction, but we can't do anything officially on behalf of the Jews in Germany. And again, there he was getting at this idea that um, uh, that uh, to be uh, to be provocative at that point in terms of international busybodiness um, would be to raise the ire again of the, of the isolationists. Now, Dodd, from the beginning, didn't really fit in with the diplomatic course because he wasn't a member of, of the Pretty Good Club. Was he? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, that was another very appealing thing. I mean, here, 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 Dodd was an outsider from the get-go. He did not go to Harvard. He was not independently wealthy, unlike the rest of the, the top diplomats and foreign service guys. And, and one of them um, had, had described this realm as a pretty good club. Uh, which is actually a pretty pretty interesting assessment of the foreign service and the diplomatic corps because it got to the it cut to the idea that these people were all all of the same class and all of the same background you know Harvard again you know Harvard wealth and so forth so here comes Dodd 
picked directly by Roosevelt, not by the Secretary of State, picked directly by Roosevelt. Roosevelt loved to do that, incidentally. That was his MO, was to, was to choose people um, within departments that, by all rights, should have been hired by the people who led those, those departments. So Roosevelt picked him directly, um, and uh, he was an outsider from the very beginning, and this led to untold problems for Dodd. Now, I think one of the things I think you do so well in this book uh, again and again is give us this perception of of the people on the ground. So you immerse us in Dodd's, you know, he has his family life, he has his his wife is there, his son is there, and his daughter is there, and and Martha is a very interesting character. I mean, who knew she would be end up sitting at a table between Sandberg, Carl Sandberg and Thornton Wilder and there's a great letter <laughs> In here, that Sandberg sends her while she's in, while right. she's in Germany. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean she she had by the time, by the time she got to Germany. So if we see, you know, part of what appealed to me here is that is that I am the father of three daughters, right? So I love the idea of this dynamic father and daughter in this new strange place. I love the fact that there she was in love with the Nazi revolution. There was Dodd, you know, initially trying to maintain this objective stance and so forth. But, you know, here she was arriving in Berlin uh, at the age of 24. By this point, she had already had an affair with Carl Sandburg. Uh, one of the delights of, uh, of research, I should say, and this is why I always do my own research, is that at one point in the Library of Congress, I came across a file that had a little clear archival plastic envelope um, uh, in which uh, were two locks of Carl Sandburg's hair. You know, both <laughs> really? fairly thick little locks of hair tied with black uh, black coat thread, and I can tell you he really was as blonde as as his photographs show. Also, the hair, interestingly, was very was really quite coarse. I don't know why that matters, but it does. You know, <laughs> so she had had an affair by this time with with Carl Sandburg. She was friends, good friends, with Thornton Wilder. There was no sexual interest there, obviously. Um, she had by this point had broken two engagements to be married and was in the midst of divorce proceedings to get out of a marriage that had lasted a very brief time and that she, in fact, had kept secret even from friends, not from her family, but from friends. So she was a very interesting person even before she got to, to Berlin. She was her own woman. She was her own person. And Dodd, to his credit, um, gave her you know, absolute you know, unlimited rope you know, to, to do and be whatever she wanted to be. Now, here you are researching the story of these people. You're in the Library of Congress, and as you're researching, you're, you're immersing yourself in this Germany. And Germany at this time was, a, was in a really interesting state because uh, the Nazis were out, and, but they weren't even uh, Martha, as you said, she saw them as strange beings. Yeah, the Nazis were, were you know, the party was in, in power. Hitler was, Hitler was, uh, was chancellor. Um, what, appealed, what appealed to her was the youth enthusiasm and energy of what she referred to as the Nazi revolution. She found it, she found it absolutely, absolutely intoxicating, which is fascinating to those of us who, again, look back with with you know twenty twenty hindsight, and she just you know for her this this period um, this period was just a very dynamic uh, this period especially in Berlin Berlin being a very very interesting city um, always kind of a a cynical sarcastic place to live so so here she is in Berlin Nazis are in power but Berlin was Berlin 
Berlin was a dynamite place to be a young 24-year-old female, especially an attractive young 24-year-old female, especially an attractive 24-year-old female who was like Martha. She had that thing that, that some people have. We have all known people like that who are just, just, just sexually charismatic beyond even what you would anticipate from physical appearance and so forth. She had that thing. She, mm-hmm. was, she was a flirt. She was smart. And you know, as I mentioned, she, I mean, she had this way of, of driving men mad. <laughs> I mean, really, almost, almost literally, as in the case of her poor French lover in Berlin, who, who uh, she kind of dangled, kept, kept on, her, on, her, on her string, kind of like fish in the water, you know, kept on her string and, and periodically would drag him out and throw him back in, you know. And this poor guy was tormented. He, at one point, he writes a letter to her. He says, he says nobody, can, nobody can, can hurt me the way you do, and, and nobody knows it like you do, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Well, it, as... As you yourself, the writer, were um, researching this, the, the Nazis, the Nazi violence uh, began in a couple ways. There were beatings of Jews, and you know we all think of the German army. We hear about the stormtroopers, and we hear about the the SS and the Gestapo. But you give us a really good picture of the birth of these three very different units. The the stormtroopers, I always thought kind of thought of them as being very disciplined, but in fact they were pretty much the opposite. They were like a bunch of rowdy drunks who would go out and beat people up. Right. There were a vast million and depending on what time you 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 look at the stormtroopers, a million plus um, uh, cadre of essentially a paramilitary thugs, you know, ill ill uniformed um, not not terribly disciplined, not well armed, in fact, barely armed. I mean, they weren't walking around with submachine guns at this point. I mean, they were they were pretty much pretty much kept without weapons. Um, their officers during this period were finally allowed to carry weapons. but they were one contingent. the uh, the 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 powerful um, uh, armed entity was the regular army. But even the regular army was limited by treaty to only a hundred thousand men. This was so. So, so we need to. That's another thing that surprised me is that here was the German army, the regular army, well armed, well equipped, well trained, could easily have overcome the stormtroopers if if it came to that. And for a time, it seemed as if it would come to that. But here you had this army of only a hundred thousand men, could easily have been overwhelmed by the forces of, of France, Britain, and Czechoslovakia. In fact, Czechoslovakia probably alone could have overwhelmed the German, the German army in this era. But interestingly, nobody, nobody felt compelled to do that, obviously, because of World War I and depression and so forth. But uh, that, was, that was a very interesting—I mean, I, I had been aware of this, but never, never acutely aware that there was this division between the stormtroopers and the, and the regular army. And then, you know, Enter the Gestapo, um, which was a very interesting, highly nuanced organization in this in this in this first period. It just made for a very rich, very complex time. As our writer, I think you do a fabulous job of giving this all this complexity. And I want you to talk about you've got your doing research, you're going out to the Library of Congress. Did you travel to Germany to to get some of these papers? You know, I traveled to Germany actually for 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 a rather different purpose. Um, my main goal in going to Berlin was, and and it, it once again I I found it absolutely invaluable to go. 
Um, you know, you, you you could say, well, you know, Berlin today is nothing like what it was because in 1945, during the Russian assault, this this area, this central area where the book takes place, was obliterated by by the Russians in their assault on the on the uh, on Berlin and and primarily in their race to win the the Reichstag building, which is their symbolic. That was the symbolic goal of the Russian assault. But you could say, well, you know, why go? Because it's just so totally different. But I found it absolutely invaluable for a number of reasons, subtle reasons. For example, one goal I had was to track down um, was to track down all the addresses where the action took place. I didn't expect buildings to be there, but just the addresses. And in fact, in most cases, the buildings were not there. They had been you know, destroyed, wiped off the face of the earth. In fact, the park, which is the center of the uh, the center of the story, the Tear Garden, which in literal translation is Garden of Beasts, hence the title. All the action takes place around and at times in in the park. The park, um, after the Russian assault, was utterly leveled and was not leveled by, by military forces, um, was further further uh, what's what's worse than leveled I and mean, it was was further destroyed by um, starving Germans freezing Germans who uh, who cut down any remaining stumps for firewood and also who planted the park as a vegetable garden so even the park um, today is very different than it was I mean it's not the same park it is however a gorgeous park um, and it is in the same location so you have a sense of what what that was like but what was the most subtle thing that I observed when I went to two two subtle things, and I don't know why it matters, but it informs the book in in, in very subtle ways. One was that everything, all the action, takes place. The, the various nodes of action, the various offices, Gestapo headquarters, the Dodds house that they eventually lease um, from a, a prominent Jewish banker, um, all these locations were within an easy 15, 20-minute walk of each other. Now, I don't know why that's so important, but it is. It just gives you a sense of this this close-packed world that was so important to the future of the rest of the world. Um, the second thing, and, and I had not appreciated, and I realized this when I first looked out my hotel room. I was on a pretty high floor looking out actually over the tear garden in the distance. The first city, the first thing that popped into my head, strangely enough, was a Texas city, Corpus Christi. And the reason was that when I first went to Texas and, and saw Corpus Christi, I was blown away by how how flat and how vulnerable the city seemed. And that's how I was struck by Berlin, just utterly flat. And it just made me think, I don't know, I, it's just very important to know. It's also important to know how, how cold it gets in Berlin in February, <laughs> which is when I was there. Now, uh, I, I think that what's interesting is too the way you do a great job. You uh, at the beginning of the interview you talked about uh, this be seeming like a horror story, and it really is. A- and a- as the Nazis tried to consolidate their power, which they called coordination, they, they wanted to get coordination. In, yes, yeah. they wanted to get into every aspect of your life. But what you point out is that this wasn't a done deal. That up till ha- about maybe I'd say halfway through or some partway through this book. Things could have gone very differently. Oh, absolutely! Things could have gone very differently. But let me let me first go back to the uh, to the horror movie thing because it's it, it's very important to the the specific 
and especially in the context of the coordination, the specific movie, um, and people of a certain vintage will recall this movie, and I'm talking about the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Believe it or not, that's the movie that influenced this in, in, a, in a sort of an interesting way. And that Don is, Siegel. Yeah, what? Don Siegel was the director. That's the one with uh, uh, who plays the doctor who comes back from... Uh, Howard Keel, is it? No, no, no. Anyway, so the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where this guy returns to this town and finds everything changed in subtle ways. And he just can't put his finger on it until like halfway through the movie when, of course, then it turns out to be seed pods. In this case, it's Nazis, you know. But, but, but the, thing about, the thing about the movie that, that, that resonated with, with this particular period in, 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 in German history, this, this coordination, the coordination, um, which was a deliberate plan by the government to bring people in line with sort of the Nazi ethos, um, is that it, it happened in some very subtle ways, but also very suddenly. So people could go away on vacation. Let's say you went away abroad for a month or so and you came back to Berlin. And you would find your village completely changed in some very subtle and some not so subtle ways. But you would find even the way people dressed was different. Their haircuts were different. The way they related to you was very different depending on their perception of, of you. Were you were you suspected of being Jewish? Were you suspected of being harboring feelings antithetical to, to the or opposed to the to the to the to the Hitler hierarchy? And it was it just struck me that that's a very creepy thing to leave a country and then come back and find your 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 surroundings utterly changed. It was just creepy. So I liked I liked that resonance with the invasion of the body snatchers. <laughs> <laughs> well, it also has there's a, a real a burgeoning and justified sense of paranoia, and we think of today of being living in a surveillance society, but that's not new. That happened back then, and the Tiergarten was a is an, plays an important part in this book for yeah, that very reason. Yeah, and that I think that was one of the sort of nice. Interesting little elements that I discovered um, as I was doing the research is that as as the fact of Gestapo and, and other agencies were, were also spying, but as, as the fact of Gestapo surveillance became more and more obvious and, 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 and clear, even though, you know, hard actual evidence, uh, like in the part of the Dodds, that their house was bugged was was hard to come by, but they were certain that their house ultimately was being bugged by the Gestapo. What this what this surveillance culture led to is is it made the Tear Garden one of the few places where you could actually take a walk with somebody and talk openly and con- with the confidence that you weren't being eavesdropped upon. It was one of the few places where you could just. Oh, you know, now we can now we can talk. And in fact, Ambassador Dodd would fairly routinely arrange meetings with other, with his with his counterparts, France and 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 um, and and Britain in particular, to go for strolls through the Tear Garden to have private conversations, especially Sir Eric Phipps. So there's these charming little communiques that I found where Dodd will write a letter to Sir Eric Phipps and say. I wonder if you'd join me for a walk tomorrow at 11 o'clock in the tear garden, meet me at such and such a corner, you know. And just the idea of these these diplomats just kind of strolling through this lovely park, you know, having their conversation. And all around them, you know, was this, this dark darkening 
surveillance culture, this, this growing oppression. It's, it's just made a sort of a nice charming element to me. Dodd's job was was pretty difficult and not at all what he anticipated. He had to deal with a lot of and this this book too, I think nobody can read this book now and not think about a bunch of very different disparate things that are happening right now in this world today and think, wow, that this what's happening here reminds me of that. I thought of Iran, I thought of the Tea Party, I thought of everything in between. Right. And one of the things that was happening was that American citizens were being, you know, occasionally being beat up by SA and sometimes maybe Gestapo. The, SA primarily, yeah, yeah. The stormtroopers, yeah. The stormtroopers. And then uh, Dodd would have to deal with that. Yeah, yeah. That's an element that surprised me too. Let 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 let, let, let me talk a little bit about the the, the whole issue of, of violence, for example. Um, very complicated in this first period. Early on, in the in the in the several months after Hitler became chancellor, a number of things happened. There was the famous Reichstag fire, which um, which triggered this spasm of official violence against Jews. Communists, social democrats—it was a party anyone perceived to pose pose uh, be a source of opposition to to Hitler. Violence um, on an outrageous scale, killings, beatings, um, ad hoc camps, uh, prisons popping up all over Berlin. But this trailed off um, rather dramatically. It trailed off to the point where, by the end of 1933. Um, Dodd's very skeptical and very cynical consul general, um, an American named George Messer Smith, not to be confused with the German aircraft designer. They had no relationship. But even Messer Smith um, uh, was moved to write in a dispatch that violence against Jews had fallen to almost nothing. Physical violence had fallen to almost nothing at this point. He noted as well, however, that it had been replaced by something much more much more oppressive and intractable, and that was people were being forced out of their jobs by various Nazi measures and so forth. But you had this very interesting sort of lull in physical violence against Jews and against against everyone. But there were these periodic incidents. They happened probably about once a month. And the pattern was, was always startlingly similar. An American would be traveling in Berlin, would be say, window shopping on Friedrichstrasse, you know. I mean, people did shop. There were wonderful department stores. You know, life was lived as it would be anywhere else, you know. But then maybe you'd be walking across along the street. You're an American again. You're walking along the street. A stormtrooper parade would come by. Stormtroopers were often parading. They would often have a band. They'd be marching along with their banners and their, their you know, thuggish ways and their, their really sloppy uniforms and fat, skinny, short guys, you know, the whole deal. And the custom, well, the requirement was that for Germans was that when you saw one of these formations come by, you had to stop and do the Hitler salute. Americans didn't buy that. And in fact, officially, Americans were not required to, to do the salute um, in, in the way that Germans were. Stormtroopers didn't really see it that way. If you didn't salute, they'd beat the hell out of you, you know, and that was what was happening from time to time. And so Dodd would have to deal with those situations. In fact, the book opens with a particularly horrific moment um, uh, before Dodd arrives uh, involving one such, one such really severe, severe beating. But I was not aware of this happening. I, didn't, I wasn't aware that Americans were being beaten up in 1933 in Berlin. So that was another little interesting little complex element. And, and you know, who did Dodd go to for help? He went to Rudolf Diels. 
chief of the Gestapo. And Diels was was very helpful in in quelling um, stormtrooper violence. You know, he he in, in in a couple of cases took armed forces to to you know steal people that the stormtroopers were holding. So there was that element of conflict as well. Now um, we also have Martha, who among her many lovers, just to make things even more entertainingly complicated, is a gentleman named Boris. And Boris <laughs> bears a certain uh, resemblance to uh, somebody who was associated with a flying squirrel. <laughs> yeah, well, Boris is yeah, that's very well put. Boris Badernov, I assume, is who you're referring to. Yes. But this this is Boris, uh, Boris Vinogradov, uh, who was... Um, you know, we don't want to give too much away about Boris, but let's just say Boris Boris Vinogradov was a uh, a secretary, meaning a, a diplomatic official in the Soviet embassy. He and Martha meet at a dance club, um, and to hear them both tell it, it was essentially love at first sight for both of them. Boris was um, um, well over six feet tall, really handsome guy, um, and here's Martha, all of five two. Um, and they 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 fell in love, um, or so it seems at that point. And their relationship from from then on becomes a very important part of the story. Um, thank God Boris wrote love letters, and thank God Martha saved them because they make wonderful reading um, in in the in the whole saga. With this very surprising, I think, end that maybe we don't want to talk about. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's uh, it's really fascinating the way all this plays out. Now. Um, as you are researching what the events that this book culminates with, things the the climate's becoming darker and darker, yes. and I'd like you and to tenser, just, tenser, really very tense. Yeah. And not only is it tense, not only is it tense in a metaphoric way, it's tense, it's tense in a, a geophysical way because Germany is undergoing a severe drought of a kind that hadn't been seen for a long time, and this was putting Hitler's economic recovery programs at risk as well. Now, um, uh, I'd like you to talk about. You, as an author, immersing yourself in this increasingly dark and despairing uh, climate, how did you – and talk about what kind of materials you were gathering yeah. and how you put together what must have been thousands or maybe even tens of thousands of pages of documents into what's really a, a zippy 300-page uh, read. Well, you know, you, you, in order to do any kind of – any kind of work of narrative nonfiction, you have to. It's unfortunate that some writers who who want to do this kind of thing feel that they're justified in taking shortcuts, you know, making up dialogue and all that kind of thing, or 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 imputing things, or coming up with composite characters and so forth. You can't do that. You can't do that. So the only way you're going to be able to do this kind of thing is if you go the distance and collect those many thousands of bits and pieces of information. And you know, I mean, I drew on everything that. I could possibly draw on that shed light on the period. You know, vast numbers of documents from the Library of Congress, from the National Archives, an amazing trove, 2,000-plus pages um, from the University of Delaware, Newark, Delaware, where, where George Messer Smith had filed his, his materials in, in one of, frankly, one of the most beautifully archived collections of documents I've ever seen. You know, thousands of, of pages um, with his acute observations. He was known as 40 Pages George, which gives you an idea of how long <laughs> these documents were. Um, and, and, and amazingly, amazingly, um, 
uh, I wound up spending two full weeks uh, uh, of research, which, and my MO, by the way, is to breeze into an archive, read something just enough to get a sense that it might be valuable, and then photocopy the whole thing. So I don't spend months and months sitting in an archive. I spend, you know, in this case, in, 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 in Wisconsin, uh, I, I spent a couple of weeks, but I photocopy everything. So I came away there also with thousands of pages of documents about some very interesting characters who play peripheral roles in this book. Who knew that they'd be in Madison, Wisconsin at the Wisconsin State Historical Society? One is Sigrid Schultz, mm. uh, a correspondent for the Chicago Tribune who became um, friends with Martha and was the fir- one of the first people to try to cue her into the realities that, that was trying to tell her early on that Martha, tell Martha that her rosy view of Berlin was not necessarily correct. You know, that there was a lot of bad stuff going on. So there was Sigrid Schultz's papers. There were the papers of Louis Lochner, who was the Associated Press Bureau chief there, and, and some other characters who turn up in the book, all there in Madison, Wisconsin. Who knew? You know, so, so what I try to do is I draw on all these little bits and pieces and, and many other many other sources, both 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 published and unpublished, some online resources like the, you know, there are some wonderful documents that have been declassified in the, the last few years, the so-called Venona intercepts, um, talking about which which, which reveal uh, communiques um, involving Martha at, at various points and also KGB documents and things like that. So you put all these things together, but the, the key is to mine them for the little bits and pieces um, that that need to appear at, at, at particular points in the chronology of the story. That's what I do. I take the story and break it down into its bits and pieces so that everything is in the right place at the right time, so that we experience that story the way the people who lived at the time experienced it, ideally. Like, we see what happened that day, and we don't make any judgments about what was going to happen, you know, 10 years hence. It's it's what they saw that day. And when you... When, and when you when you restrict yourself to that point of view, interesting things happen. It's what makes the book such a, a pleasurable reading experience because, as you say, we um, we have this full knowledge of what happened. But when we read this, you get a really great and different picture of, of how it felt on the ground. And you can understand how these things happen. It makes it much easier to understand how Nazi Germany came about. I've never... You always ask why, or you know, and you always say it can't happen here. Boy, that's the last thing you're going to say after reading this book. Well, yeah, and you know, one of the interesting responses, and I don't know what to make of this. Frankly, it's it's interesting, and uh, you know, I'm totally relieved by the reception of the book, but I'm also I'm also just a little bit a little bit troubled by it because what I'm hearing is um, that. From both ends of the political spectrum, on the one hand, on the one side, you have people who say, oh, boy, this reminds me a lot of the Tea Party and Sarah Palin and all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But at the other end, you have another group, um, surprisingly large and vocal and, and you know not shy about expressing this group, who think that Obama is Hitler. And I mean, I find, I find, I find that particularly difficult to grasp, but... What it, what it speaks to is, across the political spectrum, an uneasiness, a political, cultural uneasiness about the status of civil liberties in America today. And it's, it's interesting. As a writer, I think one of the things you do uh, in terms of a nonfiction format to make this much more readable is while you have notes, 
you don't have footnotes. And I think that makes it really – it's it's yeah. such a pleasure to read. And, and all you have to do – I just kind of set up a dual bookmark system <laughs> so I can kind of flip back and forth well, and see. Well, of course, the goal is that you don't flip back and forth, that uh-huh. you wait until the end of the book. I mean the, the point – you know, we should be clear. I mean, a footnote in the traditional footnote is one of those little teeny numbers in the in the text, and then it refers you to a footnote at the bottom of the page, mm-hmm. or maybe at the end of the book. But I prefer the approach that a lot of a lot of I think the better histories follow, which is that at the at the end in the source notes, you see a, a little snippet of of a quote or something uh, tied to a specific page, and that's how you find. The thing that you're you're looking for it's not mm-hmm. a it's not a footnote per se it's a, it's an end note or a source note, but you know my goal I, I I mean I love it that people love the footnotes and that they check the footnotes and that's why in fact I salt the end notes with with a lot of little uh, sort of my little my little dividends I like mm-hmm. to think of little stories that didn't make it into the text like the director's cut well yeah the director's cut like and, and for example some of the jokes that Berliners told about Hitler which mm-hmm. are hysterical <laughs> you know I mean who knew that Berliners were telling jokes about Hitler right but uh, but but my my intent always my intent yeah I, I, I it, I, it is not my intention with my books to inform per se. You may use my books in your PhD thesis if you want. It's fine. It's, everything's everything's good and accurate, or as accurate as I can get it. But it's not my intention to inform. It is my intention to create what I like to think of as a historical experience. My goal is that people will begin one of my books and emerge at the very end with this feeling that maybe they have lived briefly in this past time. Um, if they want to flip to the footnotes, that's up to them. But I prefer they wait, <laughs> wait well, till the end. It's um, and, and we talked a little bit about this before with Thunderstruck. This is a, a world building experience. You build for us a world in the same way Tolkien builds Middle Earth. You build. Only not, he made it up. <laughs> he made it up. But I think um, this this is as rich. And I think it's also in some ways as foreign. It's it's as weird because we just. We just don't never. It's hard for us to have grasped how they saw it, and that's what's the difference. I yeah. think with your books is, you give us a perceptions of how they saw it, not just what happened. Yeah, and and actually, you know, thinking about it, I kind of like your reference to Tolkien because really, what we're talking about here is a nonfiction Mordor. You know, these these <laughs> these are the hobbits. You know, our little hobbits, uh, the Dodds, going into the to the land of Mordor. Only it's all it's all real. It's all nonfiction. And and you know, the beauty of that is that is that you know, you have no choice but to adhere to the historical record. You can't. I mean, I suppose some some might try to, but you can't. You can't leverage the material to make somebody seem more heroic or less heroic than they are. That's why, you know, I, I make a point of saying, you know, th- there are no, there are no Oscar Schindlers in this book. There are no out and out heroes. But what you have are very nuanced people moving through a very complicated time. And in the case of the protagonists, both when you look at the ledger carefully, you realize that, well, they aren't necessarily out-and-out heroes. You know, Martha never buys a submachine gun and tries to blow away Hitler, you know. While they aren't out-and-out heroes, when you look at the ledger, the balance is tipped toward the heroic. I agree. And I think it's also – I love the this word nuanced you use. I think that and complicated. That's what's really great to read this book. Just to this is a very enjoyable book to sit down and read. And in spite of how dark and 
despairing parts of it are, you really make it a pleasure to, to, to read and immerse ourselves and put ourselves in this world, in part because it's, you give us the complexity and the richness of it. Well, that's, that's really great to hear. But, you know, I, I, think, I think one of the things that, 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 that I, I hope helps with that is that, you know, there are certain little details that, that I always look for, and I can go a whole day, and if I don't... F- if I want to find one such little detail, you know, um, I'm happy. But little things that, that, that in, in, to me at least, lit my imagination. For example, just the fact, I mean, who knew, just the fact that in this area, 1933-34, Joseph Goebbels, this guy who was one of the ultimate Jew haters of history and the minister of propaganda and thoroughly evil, um, who knew that in 1933-34, Joseph Goebbels was was coveted, a coveted guest at, at parties because he had a great sense of humor. It's a so vicious <laughs> sense of humor, but he had a great sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and wasn't he, he started out as a pig farmer, didn't he? Uh, you think you're thinking of Himmler. He was oh, a chicken farmer. Chicken farmer. <laughs> <laughs> Himmler, Himmler didn't have much of a sense of humor. Himmler was, well, he was a, he was a piece of work. But, but yeah, and also the fact that uh, Hermann Goering was considered, the, you know, the guy who ultimately uh, uh, built and, and ran the... Uh, the uh, Luftwaffe, which of course bombed, you know, London almost to, to submission. But uh, here's here's Hermann Goering in this period, also was considered one of the better men of the regime. You know, again, if you had problems with the stormtroopers, you could go to Goering and complain, and he could he would if it, if he felt it appropriate, he would take action. But Goering was essentially, as it turns out, uh, uh, and he was a young man. They, the top guys, apart from Hitler, were in their thirties. Um, uh, Gehring, Gehring would—he uh, was—he was essentially a three hundred pound nine year old. You know, <laughs> I mean, he—he—he he, he, he had this enthusiasm for for toys, for for uniforms. He would always constantly crafting a brand new uniform. You know, one moment he'd look like a three hundred pound wood sprite, and the next it would be this this all white, resplendent white uniform. And he was, uh, but he was also known to be utterly fearless. Um, he had he had um, uh, very much dignified himself during World War One as a flying ace. He was said at one point to have hung upside down from from an aircraft in midair. Um, he was a, a very, very much a heroic character in the German military tradition. And then here he is in 1933-1934, suddenly in a position of, of great power, and. Only later does he reveal his truly lethal characteristics, as he does uh, in the climax of the book. And I think one of the things this book does effectively, it will turn our perceptions of Nazi Germany and how these things happened upside down. I've been speaking with Eric Larson. His newest book is In the Garden of Beasts. Thank you for joining me, Eric. Thank you very much. This is great. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.